spiritual journey, I want to hear from those who have taken this path before me. This podcast focuses on them and listening to their stories, uninterrupted. My name is Hiba Masood, and I invite you to reflect on the trajectories of their lives and the guidance and blessings provided by Allah Subhanahu along that journey. Every Sunday, Mufti Niaz Hanan patiently guides us through Hanafi Fiqh for the Safina Society Awaylam classes. Beyond that, he is the full-time imam at the Islamic Center of South Jersey, the chaplain at Drexel University, and he teaches at Imam Ghazali Institute in New York and Ikra Institute in Philadelphia. Some of you may also know him as a regular on the Safina Society podcast. In this episode, he talks about growing up in a household influenced by his maternal grandfather, who was a scholar. Mufti Niaz's journey began with leaving home in his teens for his school in Buffalo, followed by the UK where he spent 10 years studying the Islamic sciences, graduating from Jamiatul Ilm al Huda, part of a network of Islamic schools that traced their roots back to Dayabund in India. He went on to do a master's in Islamic studies while training in the legal sciences as a Mufti, and finished off his studies abroad with a one-year intensive leadership program under Sheikh Abdulhaki Murad at the Cambridge Muslim College. Following a six-month Tablik Jamaat trip to India and Bangladesh, he headed home to the East Coast, where he has been serving for the past five years. Please listen to his story as he speaks with love about his teachers, the female scholars in his life, and the importance of Ihsan in teaching and learning. Growing up, there were different phases for me. So my father comes to America in the early 80s. My mother comes in the mid 80s. I'm born in 1987 in New York, in Brooklyn. That's all the affiliation that I have with New York. Um, I don't have any other connection to New York other than I was there for two months as a baby before moving to Pennsylvania. But uh, now and again, I try to rub it in people's faces if there's an appropriate opportunity. But no, very much born and raised in the suburbs of Pennsylvania, a little town called Montgomeryville. The next closest major town is Lansdale, uh, where we had our masjid. My father was uh, one of the administrators there. My mother was also there uh, on the sister's side of things. And um, growing up early in element until I was about six or seven or so, um, before we had our community masjid, uh, it was mainly meeting up with other families in the area, Pakistani and, Pakistani and Indian families. They would have get-togethers once a week, and I was usually the youngest out of all the kids. So I don't know too many of the kids from that time, but my parents uh, and I, we were invited. We were the only Bengali family in the community at that time. It was all Indian and Pakistani families that would rotate among their houses, and we would have gatherings once a week, reading from a book, and there would be food, and there would be dua. These type of community gatherings that I feel like don't happen in the same way anymore and it's something for my generation and the people coming after me to think about that there's a lot of good that happens just by having these informal gatherings, just family dawats. But around 1993 or so, 
um, one of uh, the community members in Pennsylvania where I grew up, a Bengali uncle, his name is Abu Ayyub Ansari, uh, he passed away. Uh, he had a house that he basically allowed the community to use as a masjid. So we used to meet there in the living room of that house for a period of time. And that acted as our community masjid. We actually had Saturday and Sunday school. Most places nowadays only have school on one day. So uh, my father wasn't a teacher. He was an admin at the masjid, but I was there at the masjid all the time whenever they would go. And my mother was in charge of everything happening on the sister's side. Um, so we had classes there, just Quran classes, Arabic, Qaeda, and Tajweed, and some basic Islamic stuff. So this is around 1993 when I'm about six, seven years old, second grade. Now, um, when I'm about eight, nine, ten years old, we bring an imam from Bangladesh who is a hafiz. We had a previous imam who's not a hafiz, who lives in the community now, but um, we basically had our first imam who was traditionally trained and was an alim, uh, was a hafiz of the Quran, and that was the first year we did Tarawih with Khatam of the Quran. We previously did Tarawih uh, with just surahs and short surahs during Ramadan. That was my first exposure to someone who had memorized the Quran and actually memorizing the Quran. So in our Saturday Sunday classes, we were just working with the Qaeda and then working on memorizing surahs from Juz Amma, the 30th Juz of the Quran. Through his influence, that Imam who had come over, I started spending more time at the masjid. Eventually, after 9-11, we were able to get a community center that actually previously belonged to a church and was used as an exotic, exotic dance club, but eventually was shut down. And then we bought it and we converted it into a masjid. We continued our Saturday Sunday school classes there. That imam was very influential and instrumental in me being encouraged to continue memorizing. I finished memorizing full 30th Jews and full 29th Jews of the Quran and then eventually decided that, you know, with his encouragement and his advice to my parents and then the support of my parents to go and study, at least start off by memorizing the Quran full time. So that's the beginning of my kind of religious education. As far as outside of the masjid, uh, the experience was pretty much very Desi suburban in the sense that at that time, the early 90s, mid-90s, I was one of maybe a handful of Desi kids in my public school, elementary school, and then in middle school there were more because there was a couple of public schools coming together. But still, um, not that many of us. And as far as Muslims, even less so. There were a lot of Hindu uh, students in the school, boys and girls, but very few Muslim uh, boys and girls at that time. So I would only have as my friends people who were neighbors in my neighborhood where I lived, um, just the people who lived on the same street as me. Um, I was someone who went through different phases as far as school and as far as my religious education and as far as uh, my upbringing as well. There was a period of time where um, I was out all day after school. So I would just come home from school, have something to eat, uh, try to finish as much of my homework as I could beforehand, and then to basically stay out all the way up until well past Maghrib time and come home just when everybody else has already gone home. So there was basketball, there was street hockey. I'm also a hockey fan, um, even though most people don't know that or 
uh, really care about that. But uh, very big Philadelphia sports fan. Watching as well as playing, um, we lived in a cul-de-sac, and you know, a couple of the neighbors had basketball hoops, and we played hockey in the street. We played football in the street. We're about 20 miles away from downtown Philadelphia, but very rarely did we ever make trips to Philadelphia, even as a family. There's a lot of restaurants there, and there's a lot of Muslims there, but we only ever really left to go to New York or Edison once every other month or so to do shopping uh, for groceries and stuff that we couldn't get closer or locally. My father actually had two stints in trying to have his own store. We had a grocery store that still exists today. He started it up back in the early 90s. So for a period of time, I was being picked up by my mom after school and would stay there until closing at the store. It's called City of Joy. It's still there in Lansdale, in the community where I grew up. It's been obviously transferred over to different owners now, but my father started that up. And then later on, uh, I spent a lot of time. My father had two dollar stores and um, for a couple of years. So that was for a period of time, just all the free time that I had. I would just go straight from school, just hang out there in the back of the store for a couple of years. When I got to middle school, then that's when we had our masjid that we had converted from a club to a masjid. Um, the community grew. That community there now, that masjid there now, has over a thousand families within a five-mile radius. And there are at least 30, 40 people there five times a day. Um, it's people... In the Bengali community, the way we kind of work is we just go where other Bengali people are. We just feel more comfortable like that. We travel in packs in that way. And uh, we bring as many members of our family, extended family, over, right, so that they can all live with us. And till this day, that community is a very, very vibrant community. So um, uh, in the beginning, there was very little opportunity for study. There were no halal food options, so we had to just kind of make way with whatever was available. Who were some of the early religious influences in your life? The earliest religious influence in my life, uh, from as far back as I can remember specifically, is my grandfather and my mother. So my grandfather, his name is uh, Abu Ta'us Maulana Muhammad Rehanul Haq, who passed away back in 2009. Uh, he actually did not get to see me graduate but he was very influential uh, when I first visited Bangladesh back in the mid 90s twice um, he was still working at the time and he was still teaching in a public school in Bangladesh at the time he graduated from the world famous renowned Institute of Learning in India Darlun Deoband in India and he was one of the students of the great Hadith scholar and master um, Maulana Hussein Ahmad Madani, rahmatullahi And he's known as Madani even though he's from India. He's from Faizabad in India. After he graduated from Deoband, he spent about two decades with his family in Medina Munawar in the city of the Prophet teaching. Then afterwards, he was appointed as the senior lecturer in Hadith, the Shaykh al-Hadith in Deoband. He returns back to India. He's one of the figures that's very, very influential in uh, the movement at the time of the partition discussion that was happening. So uh, he was on the side of those scholars in favor of preserving all India. He was actually not in favor of splitting off 
Pakistan. Um, and as a result of that, there were this ikhtilaf that took place in India at that time. A group of scholars, they were in favor of the Muslims having their own state and being able to have their own autonomy. And there was another opinion of a group of scholars that uh, their response to this British problem was that give it a couple of generations, eventually the population of Muslims will increase. And you know, rather than dividing up the country, the entire subcontinent into three different small countries, and also Sri Lanka, um, uh, try to keep it all together. In any case, he was... Uh, one of the greatest teachers who graduated and then taught again at that seminary. My grandfather was uh, someone who spoke about him all the time and was very much influenced by him. He has a lot of students within the Bengal region today as well, a lot of murids and disciples. And um, when I was growing up, I learned to read the alphabet from my mother. She uh, grew up in that household where my grandfather, my nana, he was an alim, he was a scholar. My nani is still alive. She's over 90-some years old now. And uh, my mother took from the influence of growing up in that household, raised myself and my sister, my younger sister, who has also graduated and become a scholar in her own right. Uh, she's teaching and serving at an institution in uh, Maryland, He's the one who basically made the dua for us. He visited America a couple of times, and I used to sit with him, just listen to stories about the time that he lived in, and I learned some of my Arabic lessons with him as well. But my mother was the main influence, uh, you know, taking from the influence of my grandfather uh, as far as starting my Islamic education. Um, when we now get to middle school, now we have a scholar in our community, as I mentioned earlier. We have a full-time imam, and he's not only just the full-time imam leading the salah five times a day. He lives at the masjid, and he teaches the Quran classes on Sunday school, Saturday school, not just volunteers trying to teach uh, the Quran. Um, he is there, and he is encouraging me, and I'm trying to memorize as much Quran as myself on my own outside of class times as well. Two other teachers who had a very, very strong influence on me going back to my Sunday school, Saturday school, weekend school days is an uncle named Murtaza Abzal. He lives in uh, Pennsylvania. He is one of the people who is the admin of the masjid. Going back from the time when we first started it and founded it and now he has... That masjid under his resume, he's also very strongly attached to the masjid in Trenton, Masjid al-Safat. He also has a masjid that he uh, commissioned named after his mother, the Zubaydah Foundation in Yardley. Uh, he's like a godfather figure to me. And um, you know, I have benefited very much from his duas and his support. Uh, he's a very, very well-known elder in the tri-state area in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Uh, he was my teacher for uh, Fiqh and Aqidah in Sunday school. My teacher for Sirah is the other person who I take so much influence from today as a storyteller, as someone who was able to make the Prophet ﷺ real to me. I, I thought that just being an imam just meant reading Quran nicely and just uh, being able to teach and being able to kind of uh, give a khutbah and you know do weddings and do dua and stuff like that. But actually scholarship and study the first exposure of that for me in english was um, my weekend school teacher brother omar abdurrahman he is now uh, 
chaplain at Swarthmore College, I believe, in greater Philadelphia, West Philadelphia area. He's a lawyer. He worked for CARE for a number of years. He's a practicing lawyer in the Philadelphia region. Um, I was able to reconnect with him after many years after graduating and coming back to America. And, um, you know, he was, you know, after my family and after my first, my, my local imam, these two teachers of mine were my first major influence as far as studying Islam. So when did you decide that you wanted to study Hivs and eventually study Islam full-time? It started off my motivation as far as why I wanted to study full-time. It went in different phases and it's really, really interesting. I was always kind of singled out in public school because I was one of the few brown kids. That was a challenge for periods of time. I was always the type of person to try to prove people wrong and try to prove the haters wrong, so to speak, right, in a colloquial expression. So just trying to survive and just trying to be admired because of good grades and being the most popular person because of having the best grades and because of achieving the best academically. When it got to the masjid and weekend school, that was also there. All right, I wanted to actually prove to my friends and everybody else in the class that, okay, I'm actually the smartest, I can memorize Quran the best, I can recite the best. And so the intention may not have been 100% sincere or pure, but uh, I used it for a good thing. So hopefully there is some benefit in that that came out of that. But now moving from that phase of just trying to kind of survive and just trying to kind of be the best at everything, when I get to middle school now, and um, things are becoming more serious. I'm learning more, and I'm kind of motivated more. I'm excited more. I'm learning more Quran, and our community is growing. The masjid is doing more programs. We're able to now have youth activities. We're able to do things like barbecue and sleepover and camping, and um, all of those things uh, are there. Um, I become very interested in just wanting to spend as much time as the masjid as possible. I just ended up slowly, slowly drifting away from my friends in the neighborhood and more and more just spending time at the masjid, trying to find an excuse to stay over at the masjid. I was very much attracted to the tablig jamaat because of that, because of this whole idea of getting to stay over at the masjid, not even for what they are trying to teach or what they're trying to propagate or the work that they do. I just thought it's cool that you get to sleep overnight at the masjid and, you know, you get to cook your own food and you get to travel and explore the world. So I was very much encouraged by that. My father was always very supportive. I traveled with him whenever the big ijtima, the gatherings would happen, right, in different regions around the country. Um, we tried to, you know, be involved with that. They tried to get students together. And it was a very, very good thing for me. Another excuse just to spend more time at the masjid. Now, um, when we are getting close to high school now, make the decision that I want to start memorizing the Qur'an full-time. As I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of support from my family, my parents, and also this imam of mine, who's no longer there. He's relocated to New York. At that time, there was no real thought about what I'm going to do after becoming a hafiz or what I'm going to do, if I'm going to become an alim, if I'm going to study the full curriculum or not, and what I was going to do. At that time, it was just, okay, it was just cool. I'm able to memorize 
the imam suggested try sending me to a full-time place where I can memorize the entire thing. My parents were on board. There was no thought of, okay, what's he actually going to do? How are you actually going to work? Or how are you actually going to uh, earn a livelihood? There were people in the community that to this day, I mean, they don't do it in a harsh way, but they do it kind of in a sarcastic way. But uh, we don't judge them based off of kind of what they say on the surface. But um, yeah, they thought that my parents were crazy for sending someone like me who was good at school. I, w- I had good grades. I had the potential to do you know, something in the field of engineering or medicine if I wanted to just through hard work. And um, you know, my parents were always supportive of things at school. But now taking this big leap in a different direction now, right? I'm about to start high school, but before starting high school, I go on to the Darloom in Buffalo, Darloom Al-Madaniya in Buffalo, New York, which is established by one of the students of Sheikh Al-Hadith, Maulana Muhammad Zakaria, who's from Saharanpur in India, which is a village just a couple miles away from Deoband, another seat of learning and an institution that's there from around the same time as when Deoband, the Darloom there, was founded. Sheikh Zakaria is a teacher of uh, Sahih Al-Bukhari. He was also... Uh, relocated to Medina Munawwara after retiring from teaching in India. He had a lot of disciples all over the world. As a Hanafi scholar, he actually wrote like a good 18-20 volume commentary on the Muatta of Imam Malik. It's a very, very great Hadith master and a great scholar of uh, the tradition that uh, I am attached to. So he had a number of different disciples all over uh, the subcontinent and a couple of them who he sent to other parts of the Muslim uh, residing world at that time. One of them is Dr. Ismail Memon Madani, who was in Medina Munawwara. He's from India, but he and his family had relocated to Medina. Um, Hazrat Sheikh Zakaria sent him to America to start the institution there. Okay, he was a physician, and he had also studied uh, the religious sciences, but he was a physician by trade. He established the institution there, and that's been there for almost uh, three decades now good three decades, close to three decades now, alhamdulillah. I was there from about 2001, the fall of 2001, up until about spring of 2003, for about a year and a half. I, myself and my sister, we were both there. I managed to finish memorizing about 15 Jews of the Qur'an, half of the Qur'an while I was there. We didn't continue there, we left there uh, just because of some issues as far as not being able to stay healthy and living away from home. It was difficult for my parents. Um, a number of different reasons, but eventually my sister and I, we came back. I completed my hifs at home. I completed my memorization of the Qur'an at home with the local imam who had first inspired me. Um, I completed my hifs in about May of 2004. And up until that time, I was doing a couple of rakats in Tarawi during Ramadan. But now that I finished my hips, I spent a couple of months reviewing it at home. I spent uh, a couple of months, my sister and I both, um, we did some homeschooling just so that we can make up some of the material that we had missed out. They had schooling there in Buffalo while I was there. I finished 10th grade. And um, But there were some subjects and stuff. We did homeschooling for a little bit. Eventually making the decision to now 
study full-time after completing my HIPS to continue on the Alim course program. Can you just talk a little bit about what the Alim program entails? So the Alim course program, uh, like we refer to it as the Alim course, the technical and the official name of it, the curriculum is called the Dars Nizami. So there was a scholar in India, his name is uh, Nizamuddin Sihalvi. He basically is the one who this curriculum is attributed to, where it starts off with approximately two, two and a half years of just the Arabic language, grammar and nahwa and sarf and those subjects, vocabulary. Then you move on to introductory level texts in hadith and then fiqh, right, and tafsir, translation of the Quran. And then you continue on to uh, the advanced books in hadith and fiqh and tafsir, books like Riyadh al-Salihin, and then after that, you have the book Mishkat al-Masabih, which is studied in the second to last year. By studying the Mishkat, you now are able to go into the six books of Hadith, as well as the Muwatta, right? And as well as the book of Imam Tahawi, Tasharmani al-Athar. In Fiqh, right, you start off with books like Nur al-Idah and then Quduri in the second year. And then in the third year, depending on the institution that you go to, they'll do a book called Kanz al-Daqaiq in Hanafi Fiqh, or Sharh al-Wiqaya, or Ikhtiyar in Hanafi Fiqh. And then afterwards, kind of the major Fiqh book in the curriculum is Al-Hidayah, right, in Hanafi Fiqh. We have books of Aqidah, the Aqidah of Tahawi, and also the Sharh of Aqaidah of Imam Nasafi in books of Aqidah, and then books of Tafsir, right? You start off with just the translation of the Quran, and then you go on to Tafsir of Jalalain, both of the two Jalaluddin's, Jalaluddin Suyuti and his teacher Jalaluddin Mahalli, both of them wrote that Tafsir together. Uh, as well as uh, Kashaf and some of these other Baydawi, different books of Tafsir. This entire curriculum that culminates in the final year with the six books of Hadith and then Ijaza, licensed to transmit the six books of Hadith after studying it cover to cover, comes from Hindustan, comes from the Indian subcontinent. It's called the Darsanizami for that reason. Um, earlier in history, it used to be up to maybe 12, 14 years long because there were mandatory requirements of in addition to Arabic, but also reading certain texts in the Urdu language, and also before that, reading certain texts in the Farsi language, right? But in places like the UK, in England, and South Africa, and in America, where these institutions exist, okay, many of the Urdu works have been taken out or been translated into English, Farsi. Very few people speak it or teach it anymore. Um, except for those teachers who studied it back in India, and now they have come over here and they're continuing to teach it. So in many different ways, the curriculum has now been condensed. The average is six years. Six to maybe seven years if you don't know any Arabic, if you don't know any Urdu to start off with. But slowly, slowly, the entire thing is now being transitioned to being able to be taught in English. The Arabic texts being able to be taught and understood and translated in English. So why did you choose to specifically study in the UK? The reason why deciding to now go to England and uh, not other places, there are many other perhaps cheaper options or closer, closer options, not deciding to continue in Buffalo. Uh, the people who were the teachers in Buffalo, one of them, his name is Molana Mansour Maimon, and the other one, his name is Molana Ibrahim Maimon. Both of them, they studied in Darloom in Bury in the UK. Darloom in Bury. Bury is the name of a tiny village about, I don't, I, I don't even have an accurate number, maybe 45, 50 miles north of Manchester. 
um, in the northern part of England. Um, it's just full of hills. A different one of Sheikh Zakaria's students, his name is Maulana Yusuf Mutala, who actually just passed away this year, 2019. And ironically, he's actually buried in Canada. He was visiting family in Canada. He was sent by Sheikh Zakaria from India to England to establish a madrasa there. And that madrasa has been there for almost four decades now. So Maulana Ibrahim and Maulana Mansour, both of them graduated from that seminary in Darlaloom in Bury. And so when I found that out, okay, the people who run this school, right, they graduated from England, so I want to be able to, you know, find out what that's like. And I, we decided, right, my parents uh, agreed, we actually have a second cousin of my mother's, an uncle of mine, who lives in England, who was also very, very, very helpful to us. My sister and I picking us up, dropping us off to the airport from the airport and getting us settled in. When we first started, this was now in 2004, the summer of 2004, where I am going to England to study. I had originally applied for Bury, for admission into Bury. And my sister had originally applied for admission into a girls' school that was also established by one of the graduates of Bury in a town called Bradford in the UK. Both of us, we were put on a waiting list, uh, initially, those two schools that we applied to. So we looked towards other schools. We knew that we wanted to stay in England, and we were pretty much not going to go anywhere else other than England. Even though it's more expensive than South Africa at the time, um, tuition-wise it's more expensive, but South Africa, the flights are more expensive than flights to England, plus the UK uh, at that time we're offering also secular education in addition to the Islamic education uh, that South Africa at that time was not offering. So uh, we just went with England. There are many, many graduates from South Africa, the different institutions in South Africa, men and women, including uh, my wife. Uh, the majority of the Deobandi graduates, uh, they are from South African institutions. My sister and I, the initial schools that we had applied to, the, I applied to the boys' school in Darlalum in Bury. She applied to the Jamia in Bradford. We were both put on waiting lists. She later applied to a school in Lancaster. So there's a Lancaster that's actually in Pennsylvania, but this is the town of Lancaster in England, right? which is basically another 70 miles, another 20 miles north, so maybe about 75, 80 miles north of Manchester. She studied full-time there and continued her full-time studies there and graduated in 2012 from there, full-time girls' school from there. Can I just interrupt you for a sec? Um, mm. How did you decide that you wanted to do this full-time? Because like, I'm assuming you didn't know you wanted to do that before okay. starting his. So going back to phases as to what motivated me, um, one is just trying to be the best and just trying to survive and just trying to earn uh, prestige and points among my peers by being the best at school. And then afterwards, getting to the masjid, okay, trying to be the best kid in school at the masjid, in Sunday school at the masjid. And afterwards, the phase after that is just memorizing Quran is just really cool. I just know the most Quran, and this is really cool, and leading Tarawi is really cool. And um, I guess being a Hafiz and being the kid who opens events, right? 
and reciting Qirat in the beginning is really cool, right? That phase was there. Then afterwards, eventually, the phase where, okay, I actually want to understand what this stuff means. What is the Qur'an actually saying, okay? Getting to that level between being able to recite properly and then being affected. Like there are certain people that I listen to or that I pray behind or that I observe. They're crying and they're emotional when they're reciting the Qur'an. Why is that? Like what is it? Okay, what's it actually saying? So that just happened because of getting more mature with time and getting older and then having exposure to scholars, not just people who had memorized the Qur'an, but people who were actually scholars in these different fields. And then the change and shift in my mentality was, okay, all of the people who I'm taking from, they came from somewhere else. They either came from Bangladesh, so they're not able to be fluent in English, conveying this stuff to me, or they came from India, or they came from Pakistan, or they came from an Arab country, um, or they came from England, another English-speaking country, right? or South Africa, another English-speaking country. Some of the scholars that I used to listen to when I started HIPS back in Buffalo um, were Sheikh Suleiman Mullah, a very influential scholar from South Africa, and Sheikh Suleiman Qatani. Sheikh Suleiman Mullah is from uh, Darlum Zakaria, just outside of Johannesburg. And Sheikh Suleiman Qatani is from Durban in South Africa. And these are the two, I just love the way that they spoke. And uh, I was connected to them through people within the Tablig Jamaat. And it was different. It was not like a Juma Khutbah that I had heard before. And UK scholars, right? The people who I had heard of, I got access to their cassettes and CDs and MP3 recordings of were Sheikh Ahmad Ali from Bradford, okay? Sheikh Riyadh al-Haq, who at that time was living in Birmingham and later relocated to Leicester in England, and Sheikh Zahir Mahmood, who is in Birmingham. They were people who, in English, were able to motivate and inspire and, you know, I had never seen something like, I've only seen, you know, broken English up until this time. I'd only seen fractured English up until this time. And there was this language gap that now is becoming very, very clear to me. Okay. I am lucky and blessed. I have parents who are able to support me studying full time and I'm able to spend more time at the masjid. I don't have to work part time like some of the other kids my age, but other people who are my age are not as motivated. They're not able to have the same opportunities to spend time at the masjid um so i'm now thinking more about them okay that okay i'm able to benefit in all these ways but i now feel like i have a responsibility it's not just about being the son of the president of the masjid it's not just about being the son of the woman who's on charge who's in charge of everything on the sister side of things in the masjid um it's not just being able to recite the Qur'an beautifully or, you know, being the default Qur'an judge in a competition or things like that. No, it's now this responsibility of transmitting this knowledge back again. So that was that phase. I know that I want to do this full time. And there was pressure. There, there, there was pressure, not towards me, but towards my parents. So initially, when it comes to sending me away to study to live away from home full-time, to become a hafiz, right? Which is very different than sending your child to go to med school, right? There were voices telling them that you're crazy. Why, why are you wasting his potential? Why are you telling him or why are you encouraging to do this? How is he going to survive? But then 
six years right to go and study full-time to become a scholar become a molvi right which at times is used in a derogatory kind of insulting context among people from the subcontinent right short for the title maulana which for some reason people also have a problem with maulana just means our leader or our master but it also can be translated as our servant or our uh, you know assistant okay but it's just an honorary title given to people who graduate the darsanizami taken from that tradition but in any way people were saying why are you going to send him to become a molvi or a molana you could easily send him to become a physician or a doctor how's he going to survive right they have this reputation no one likes them there are many people who are in this field who are frauds and they do all this fraudulent stuff and they take advantage of people and all of those things um i don't know how or what or who uh convinced my parents to just trust in allah and send my sister and me away for 10 years not knowing what the experience was going to be like i mean we had a positive experience in buffalo but that was still within driving distance right 6 hour drives they would make almost every month maybe a couple of times a month if they were possible just doing shopping for us and bringing home food for us but now england right um you know a 6 hour flight away um other than holidays and other than a couple of times throughout the year we're not going to be able to be at home uh it was a very big sacrifice for them that now is being factored into my change in mentality so the phase now is going from okay i got to also factor in one i have this responsibility there are english speaking people like myself english is my first language which is actually interesting i didn't mention this earlier but i actually did not speak a word of english until i was almost 4 years old okay i could read but i couldn't speak fluently i couldn't communicate so through tv and through to, through school i learned english and i did esl all the way up until 3rd grade until i was almost 10 years old 9 years old so english is my first language now uh, make no mistake sheikh ahmed didat you know someone asked him and he responded that english is my first language because i dream in english and i swear in english okay so uh take that for what it is okay please mind your language don't swear but otherwise um language was very interesting also factoring into arabic now okay memorizing all this stuff not knowing what it means but now as i'm going away now and now as i'm made up my mind i want to study in the institution where some of these teachers who i came across with in buffalo where they t- studied the institution in england in bury um i now have to make my parents proud and i have to re- i have to kind of prove all of their haters wrong okay that i'm actually not just going to be a normal type of alim or a molvi or a scholar just someone who teaches kids only or someone who just does weddings and funerals but no someone who's actually able to be influential in the community in the same way as we think of physicians to be many of them who are in the way we think of engineers and other professionals to be right to kind of compete with that we have to think about a lot of different ways to make knowledge feasible studying knowledge as a practical means of livelihood for people who choose to pursue it and serve in that capacity full time there's a lot of challenges there and hopefully uh, people who are listening can think about these things and try to be part of the solution rather than the criticism and just the problem was it a big transition for you moving to the uk um far away from your parents in a new culture when i got to england now this 
phase comes back where I have to prove myself because England is a very hostile place for Americans, okay? They have a very, very different attitude towards anybody who's not British, right? And we can say a lot of things about Britain that, you know, they claim that the sun never set on the British Empire just because of how vast it was. But now if you look at it, okay, they're relegated to this tiny piece of land in the middle of nowhere up north. No one really cares. Britain is such a small place, but historically Britain and England has had a lot of influence all over the world. But they have this very posh and at times very, very mean and arrogant personality towards them. And even with Muslim kids as well and students in madrasa as well i had to hear a lot of everything that i said was funny even though i don't speak in an accent right I, this is how i normally speak this is how i grew up speaking and you're telling me that i'm saying everything i'm pronouncing everything wrong so in addition to studying and being the best at school i have to also defend myself being an american student all the time okay i have to survive in that regard as well i have to prove all these british madrasa kids wrong that just because i'm from america not all americans are like homer simpson and peter griffin right we actually have a lot of muslims there we have a lot of smart people there okay we're just as good if not better than the muslims of england and britain okay so again not 100 percent sincere but uh going to a sincere place not coming from a sincere place but going to a sincere place uh, inshallah may Allah forgive us and give us more tawfiq so that was there it was uh, an experience one already used to living away from home but now living very far away from home um, very limited access to phones and being able to communicate with family and then just the students having to deal with the students um, you know this is an American guy he thinks that he can come into our school and be the best in class and you know, so so I had to kind of develop a whole bunch of other skills other than just being able to take exams well. I had to learn people skills. I had to make sure that I represented American Muslims as nice and as being very humble and as b being very eloquent and as being people who work hard and all of those things. So it was a good thing. It was a good thing. That kind of inferiority complex worked in my favor eventually. Um, as I mentioned, my sister and I, we did not uh, get admitted initially into the places where we first applied to. She went to a different place called Jamia Al-Kawthar in Lancaster, in England. I applied for the Darloom in Bury. I was put on a waiting list there. I transferred to a different school in the Midlands, which is where the city of Birmingham is located. So you have basically three main regions that people refer to. When we refer to the north, it's like Manchester. Right? And then all the way up to Scotland, that part is referred to as like the north. And then south of that, you have an area called the Midlands, which is where Birmingham is, which is where Leicester is, and some of these other towns. And then after that, when you go past that, you get to London, okay? And pretty much the south. Anything past London is the south. So I enrolled in an institution which was kind of a subsidiary institution from Bury called Madinatul Ulum in a village called Kidderminster. Another funny thing about England is that their town names are hilarious. The name of this town is called Kidderminster. Okay, it took me a good week to figure out how to spell it properly and then how to pronounce it properly. They have really, really long town names in England, unnecessarily. Um, so I was there for the first three years of uh, the Alam class. 
um, there, as I mentioned, I had to get used to living away from home, getting accustomed to British culture, and then specifically British Muslim culture, and then even more specifically British Muslim madrasa culture as a full-time student there. Um, uh, the students there, uh, I became very close friends with a classmate of Naim. His name is uh, Sheikh Abdul Ghaffar Bahar. We were classmates for year one in Kidderminster, in Medina Tululum, while we were doing Arabic together. He would eventually transfer to a madrasa in Blackburn. His sisters also studied in the same institution as my sister. Blackburn is closer to Bury, where I initially applied, and closer to Lancaster, where both of our sisters were studying. He had a car, and he lived in an apartment there with his sisters, and he would visit them, and he was the eldest of his siblings. He also had a younger brother who was studying at the time. He and his younger brother, they transferred to Blackburn eventually. I stay in Kidderminster in Medina Tululum for two years, and then in the fourth year, I transfer to Blackburn as well, so that I can be closer to my sister, and so that I'm reunited with him. He is my rival, right? He finished first in our class, and I finished uh, borderline between second and third in our class. He was on a different level altogether as far as brains, as far as hard work, as far as studying and staying up late and paying attention in class. I'm very much inspired by him. It was really good to be classmates with him uh, again, and then graduate with him uh, right behind him. Uh, mashallah, his sisters are also graduated in the same from the same institution as my younger sister in Lancaster. While I was in Medina Tululum, uh, that was my first taste of the curriculum of the syllabus of the Darsan Nizami curriculum and the syllabus. And um, um, we had to memorize verbs. We had to memorize things in Urdu. We had to learn how to use a dictionary. There were times where we had. An assignment where on Friday we would do a chapter of Qasas al-Nabiyyin, the stories of the prophets, right, which is an Arabic literature book that you are introduced to in um, uh, year one and two. Okay, We had to look up basically a hundred vocabulary words over the weekend. We would be given this assignment on Friday. And at that time, you're still learning Arabic. You're still learning how to look up words in an Arabic dictionary. You're still learning kind of how the grammar works, how the different chapters of the verbs work and so a hundred words looking them up in a dictionary will take up a good chunk of your entire weekend the days where you don't have class the days where you're supposed to be able to get sleep in on sunday morning you have to sit in the masjid you have to sit in your classroom and just do your homework <laughs> otherwise you're going to get in trouble on monday morning my experience for the first three years in medina tululum and kidderminster was seeing Students just work hard, and my classmate Abdul Ghaffar just work hard, just people who took notes and people who studied after hours as well. It's one of the most important things that I took away from there. Can you talk about some of the teachers that had the biggest impact on you, uh, both inside and outside of the classroom? Uh, the teachers who taught, they were unbelievably dedicated and unbelievably disciplined, and they did not expect us to give anything other than uh, our best okay we had one teacher uh, his name and all of them you take different things from different teachers I don't have time to kind of give you a list of each and every single one of my teachers but um, just a couple off the top of my head very quickly uh, one of the teachers that comes to mind is my teacher for Tajweed in the beginning 
Qari Yusuf, right? Qari uh, Yusuf Rawat. This person is the most fun person to learn Tajweed from. The way he gives examples, the way he teaches, the difference between a full mouth ra and an empty mouth ra. I use that exact same example to this day. He was my first teacher, and the way he explained it to me, um, those examples and that teaching method, I still try to implement to this day. Um, and uh, you can never guess that you're actually studying a very technical and precise subject like Tajweed that he's able to make so unbelievably basic. Even though you're doing it wrong, you know, five, six different students in class are pronouncing the letter in a different way, right? None of us are pronouncing it correctly, but he can point out exactly what each of us are doing wrong just by listening, right? And uh, he was a master and he was amazing. Uh, the other teacher that we had for Tajweed later on, his name is Malana Qasim. Um, he was a person who made me fall in love with Qiraat, right? He used to give adhan at the masjid sometimes on Fridays. Uh, he used to um, lead salah sometimes. Very, very humble, very soft-spoken. The most soft-spoken of my teachers in Kidderminster. But then from nowhere, you hear this person giving the adhan and it sounds like the adhans that you hear from the Haramain Sharifain or from, you know, Azhar Sharif or from Baytul Maqdis Al-Aqsa Sharif, right? And, you know, he's our Tajweed teacher, right? He's, this powerful voice comes out from nowhere and he's the first person who, okay, no, this stuff is, this is how the Qur'an should be recited. This is how every scholar and alim should be prepared to try to get their recitation and pronunciation to this level. So that's my Qur'an teachers. As far as uh, in fiqh, we had... Uh, a teacher, his name was Molana Yusuf Lurga. This was where uh, we now start taking things very, very seriously. He takes uh, effort very seriously. He takes attendance very seriously. You have to study. You can't go to his class without being prepared. He will make you stand up. He will make you stay after class. He will make you learn the lesson in your own free time. And if he can't stay for the entire time to monitor you, make sure that you're not catching up on your work, he'll appoint someone else to do it. But he was the one teacher that we all feared in a very, very respectful way. Um, yeah, He was the one who's going to stand in between you and your free time on your weekends. And for me, um, I learned, okay, look, if you study properly, if you put the time and the hours in, right, you can be like this person who commands the subject so well, who can teach the subject so well. He's taught it the exact same way for at least 20 years now, right? And um, each and every single student, right? If you learn it that way, you'll teach it exactly the same way that he teaches it to you students later on. And so I took that from him, just the disciplinary, you know, structured style of learning and putting in the free time. We feared him and, uh, you know, we understood that, okay, he's the one. When it comes to his job as a teacher and his responsibility in doing tarbiya, right, and disciplining a student who is, you know, opening the books that say, Qala Allah, Qala Rasulullah, right? Allah said and the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, right, he's not going to let up or go easy on you in that, okay? And who, because of how much sincere and hard works he puts into it, he expects nothing less than that we benefited very much from that as i mentioned afterwards then after the third year into the fourth year i transferred to blackburn i'm reunited with my classmate abdul ghaffar blackburn is an institution that was established earlier than the institution in kidderminster the one of the graduates from darlumbury 
His name is Mufti Abdus Samad. Mufti Abdus Samad is my Shaykh al Hadith and my teacher for Sahih al Bukhari Sharif, who I have ijazah to narrate a hadith from, not to teach, but at least to narrate from. He is classmates with Maulana Mansoor Maimon. Maulana Mansoor Maimon, who was one of the founders of the Darloom in Buffalo, where I started my hips from. Right? This was like the early days of the institution of Bury. And Maulana Yusuf Mutala, who passed away earlier this year, uh, not too long ago this year, um, from the time of this recording, uh, he receives the Sadaqah Jari and the Ajr and the Hasanat. Now in England, last time I checked, there are 20 full-time Darlums, right? You can go in Alif Batatha and you come out, right, having completed the books of Hadith. Okay, about thirteen for full time for boys, about seven or so full time for girls, and then there's hundreds of offshoots from those institutions, uh, part time, locally, uh, boys and girls, right, in the different cities, in the different suburbs, hundreds and hundreds that we can't even count, all going back to this one institution, Darlum, in Bury. Um, I encourage everyone who is listening to look online and uh, find out more about the history of that. But Blackburn, the principal and the founder of Darloom in Blackburn, his name is Mufti Abdus Samad. He's a classmate of one of our teachers from the Buffalo Madrasa in New York, uh, Maulana Mansour Maimon. So that's where that connection uh, kind of links up. I'm now reunited with my classmate, Maulana Sheikh Abdul Ghaffar in Blackburn. Um, in Blackburn, the... Environment is different. Blackburn is more in a city area. The madrasa where I was previously for the first three years in Medina Tululum in the Midlands was in the middle of the farmland, in the middle of the countryside. It's 10 minutes away from the closest house or from the closest neighborhood or from the city. You have to take a taxi 10 minutes into the city. But Blackburn is pretty much in a residential neighborhood. So there are more non-residential students than residential students. In Medina Tululum, my previous mother said it was mostly all people who were full-time boarding students. Just a handful of them who used to live in Birmingham and in the actual town of Kidderminster, just maybe 10-15 of them max because it's too far to commute every day. Um, the teachers would come from Birmingham and those areas, but Blackburn is a city that has a very strong Islamic and Muslim presence um, since even before the madrasa is there. There are more masjids than churches in Blackburn. Okay, there are ulama, two, three ulama in every masjid in Blackburn. There are maktabs, the after-school programs for kids in every masjid in Blackburn. Um, was it like this before? Did people move for the school? No, it was like that from before. So the history of immigration of the Muslim community to the UK goes well back even before, I believe, World War One well back even before the 1900s. But it's a city uh, like another, like many of the cities in the UK, like Birmingham, like Leicester, um, like uh, Bradford, and many, many different parts of London, where the Muslim community just came in large waves. So they're at least third or fourth generation uh, Muslim families there from India, from Pakistan, and from Bangladesh. Majority from India and Pakistan. And there are also many Arabs as well. Not as many... Uh, African Muslim communities that I know of in the town of Blackburn, but there are still some there. And uh, all of them, they're all from this Deobandi tradition of learning and teaching, this sanad of hadith that goes through Deoband, okay, back to the Prophet wasallam, this institution. So in Blackburn, that's where I get a taste of, one, a bigger school, and now a lot more outside influence, okay? And we're able to go into the city. There are more students there. 
in Kidderminster, we had over altogether about 200 students. In Blackburn, there's double. There's at least 400 students, about 150 full-time boarding students, and about 250 part-time students, meaning they come in the morning and they leave in the evening. So there are opportunities for the senior students who are boarding to go and part-time volunteer at a local masjid to teach after school. So I was able to do that. So I learned about the after-school education curriculum and the books and kind of the layout and the format of their after-school programs. I still try to implement many of those teaching methods and those things in my community, in my masjid where I serve today. In Blackburn, all of the teachers who uh, used to come, they're all imams of the local masjids in Blackburn. So they live in the town. There happens to be a full-time six-year, seven, eight-year darlum in the same town where they live. And all of these teachers are imams of masjids of that same town. Right? A couple of them are from out of town, the next town over, Preston or uh, Bury or uh, Burnley. Okay, so Accrington, some of these neighboring towns, but majority of them are from that city. It's a very, very Muslim city. Uh, there's access to a lot more fast food restaurants. Okay, before when we were down in the other uh, Darlum in Medina Tula, you had to go to Birmingham. You had to drive 45 minutes to half an hour, 45 minutes into downtown Birmingham, right, somehow, or take the train. But now Blackburn, everything is within a 10, 15 minute walk. And uh, we were able to go on Jamaat from the Madrasa. Many of the foreigner students, myself, I was the only American student there at the time. As far as I know, there were one or two students there before me and a couple of students there after me. But while I was there, uh, for those four years, five years, I was the only American student there. There were a number of Canadian students, a number of students from Reunion Island, just off of Mauritius, a whole bunch of students from France, okay, Algerian, Moroccan brothers from France, and uh, a couple of brothers from Norway, a whole family of cousins and brothers from Norway, a number of students from Norway that had come. Uh, from, there was a couple of students also from the Netherlands, from Holland as well, that were studying in our madrasa. And um, very, very diverse. Just kind of those experiences, meeting these people from these other countries as well. And Blackburn was very, very enriching. Um, there was a lot more competition. The class sizes are much larger. Okay, So I have to pull my weight as well. By now, I am already accustomed to British culture. I can kind of hold my own on that front. But now, okay... One, I'm reunited with my rival, and I mean that with nothing but love and respect, Abdul Ghaffar, right? He's there now, okay, and he sits at the front of the class. When you first get to Madrasa, they kind of put you in the middle, right, or at the end, and based off of your exam results, you start from the teacher's right side, and you go in a circle. So the students who started, not every teacher does this, or not every Madrasa enforces this, but the students who sit on the teacher's right-hand side immediately at the front, they're the ones with the top scores in the class. And you're ranked in that way. So by walking into the class, right, if they follow this protocol, you can tell who's the smartest. And the so Abdul Ghaffar is all the way over there. Right? And I start off, I come, okay, and I got to now figure out how to get to the front of the class. Uh, we didn't continue that afterwards into the fifth year and sixth year. But um, uh, I'm still in that mentality, trying to compete, trying to, because this is a group of students, they've been there from year one here, and I'm now joining halfway through. Okay, I'm trying to now graduate here. Um, a number of different teachers at this institution have molded me in a number of different ways. Just I was able to see in a different capacity um, because of having access to the Muslim community in Blackburn, 
Okay, this madrasa was not the same level of lockdown. When I say lockdown, I mean that in the sincere sense, so that the students don't get into trouble. But at the same time, yes, it's very easy to get bored and find nothing to do and, you know, ways to get into trouble as well, I guess. But um, I was able to travel on weekends. We went on 24-hour Tablik Jamaat from the madrasa students, right? We were able to go to the Tablik Markas in town. Um, you know, we had a lot more... Uh, guests visiting just because of the connection of the madrasa and it's closer to Bury, so we had teachers from Bury visit all the time some of the senior teachers of our direct teachers right their teachers so our grand teachers in that way it was a very hustle and bustle type of environment instead of like the very laid-back isolated environment for the first three years of my studies there um, the most profound effect on me in Blackburn is our Sheikh Ladith Mufti Abdus Samad um, the most humble sincere soft-spoken I mean it's awkward to describe him in this way but I really have no other description that I can help the listeners relate to other than he is just a teddy bear okay you just want to give him a hug and a kiss uh, he has the goofiest looking most gorgeous looking smile all of his teeth right are bright and shining when he smiles and it just looks really weird right but that smile would just light up your face and it would make you melt um and uh you know he you could tell that he was someone who would cry for his students in the middle of the night he would always sit right behind he would always stand right behind the imam in salah time okay but he does not lead the salah he does not give a juma khutbah ever the students and the teachers the other teachers they give khutbah and they lead the salah but he's always there without fail for every salah he spends his entire day at the masjid his house is right across the street from the madrasa but um he is the life and soul of darlum blackburn without him without his vision without his leadership and most importantly without his patience without his patience the madrasa will not be where it is today and the students would not be who they are today and um you know he's on the same level as some of these speakers who are renowned that we have heard of from the UK, Mufti Abdurrahman bin Yusuf Mangera, Sheikh Riyadh al-Haq, Sheikh Zahir Mahmoud, Sheikh Ahmad Ali. Um, he's on the level of their teachers, right? But because of how humble he is, right? Even though so many students have now graduated from his institution, um, many people, unless you've been to Blackburn, you don't know who he is. Unless you know someone from Blackburn, you don't know who he is. Um, I may go for him every opportunity that I get. Uh, and he's not a public speaker either, right? He's not a public speaker either. The thing that I learned from him, and I wish that I could take a fraction of it, okay? And uh, full disclaimer, I mean this with all due sincerity. Um, please continue to sign up for whatever local classes that you are able to, okay? But if I can just share a very heartfelt reflection, one thing I would like everybody to think about I'm going to give you some examples now of some of my influences in Blackburn and then afterwards as I continue. Um, the knowledge is there. The knowledge is what you're there for. The knowledge is what you're there to acquire. But more than the knowledge is the practice of the knowledge. Okay. Um, Alhamdulillah, we have teachers and we have students and we have graduates who come out from these seminaries who can transmit the knowledge. Okay. But the challenge for me specifically is that level of 
dedication and that level of sacrifice and that level of practice that I observed in my teachers, am I able to transmit that to my students now? Okay, I don't have the same level of experience. Okay, I don't have the same level of sincerity or dedication as my teachers, but that's ultimately, that should be the objective. Okay, because the books and the fiqh rulings, okay, not much of it is going to change the way you learn your Arabic, okay, the rules of the Jweed, they're not going to change, right? The Hadith, they're not going to change, right? So transmitting the knowledge and learning all of that, the information and the content will not really change, right? The teaching methods will change and the context will change. But more than just transmitting the knowledge, the challenge, right, for people who want to study the deen and then later on become teachers is to transmit that tarbiyah, right? And so... Um, I didn't really specifically mention it earlier, but this concept of the sawuf that is attached to ta'lim, the concept of tazkiyah, purification and perfection of your practice of your knowledge, right? That's attached to the knowledge itself. We can't separate the two. So many different examples of that. Imam Abu Hanifa, who we all credit as being nicknamed as Imam Al-Azam, the greatest of imams, right? As far as the four mujtahid imams, right? The founder of his school, a fit to which the school and methodology is attributed. He was asked about uh, tazkiyah. He was asked about the sawuf, and he replied, "Ma'rifatun nafs ma'laha wa ma'alaiha." Ma'rifatun nafs, recognition of the soul, ma'laha wa ma'alaiha. What's good for it and what's harmful for it? Right? It's okay, a figurative translation. What's in favor of it? What's against it? So, not only knowing the rulings, but how to properly practice and internalize those rulings right it's two different things it's a separate subject and study on its own and when we look at the lives of our teachers right they don't talk about it right they don't tell them about they, they don't tell us about you know their practice of never missing tahajjud but we can tell right there's no way you can speak on one hadith for three hours never you can, my teacher mufti abdul samad i've never heard him give a juma khutbah which is 20 25 minutes half an hour long but he can speak on one hadith for three hours without fail and the crazy thing about it is that he's been teaching that book sahih al-bukhari tirmidhi sharif these two books for almost 20 years now but every day every day without fail in the evening hours we have a session called mutala mutala basically is your homework time where you review and you get ready for the next day's classes and lessons uh, for HIF students, that's when you're memorizing for the next day. He is going through post-it notes and sticky notes in his book. His old book is tattered and it's got writing and posted all over the place, right? Even though he knows it inside out, okay? He doesn't need to. What? Because it's the correct adab of the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. He goes and he makes sure that he does mutala of the book before going to teach it in class the next day. Even though he's been teaching it, right, for the past two decades, Right, without fail, right? He doesn't go into a class where he's teaching the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ without preparation first. Okay. So we need to think about that. Okay. And again, credit for the students who study part-time, making time for their mutalaa. May Allah reward them and may Allah increase them. Mufti Abdul Samad, um, as far as dedication and sincerity. Uh, the most difficult part of leaving Blackburn was leaving him behind. Not being able to feel his presence there in the back of the musalla while everybody else is messing around in different corners of the giant musalla area, right? Trying to memorize and trying to do their home. He's watching over everyone, okay? He's there until Fajr sometimes without fail. He's there from Fajr to Fajr sometimes without fail. He's there even on the weekends when the rest of the teachers are not there for class. 
um, you know, his entire life and his entire blood and his entire, you know, being is sacrificed for his institution. Uh, so he's one of the most powerful influences on my life. I take my transmission of Sahih al-Bukhari Sharif with him. The disciplinarian in Darlum Blackburn was our other teacher for the second part of Bukhari Sharif, Mufti Inayatullah, Mufti Inayatullah Patel. Um, he used to only come uh, a couple of days of the week because he used to also teach at another Darlum in Bolton, another town about 20-25 minutes away from Bury. He would teach us parts of Bukhari. Um, he would just come for one hour a day. We did Bukhari with him for three days and we did Tirmidhi with him for three days. So both him and Mufti Abdul Samad, we did half of Bukhari and Tirmi with the with them. Mufti Abdul Samad, he had a separate hour for Bukhari every day and for Tirmidhi every day. Mufti Inayatullah, he only had one hour every day with us. So three days of the week he did Bukhari with us. Three days of the week he did Tirmidhi with us. He was the one that you don't open any other book before the night before. You have to memorize his lesson before going into his lesson. He's only coming for a short period of time. He's not going to let anybody mess around or not learn in his lesson. He was the disciplinarian. And um, even though he's very soft-spoken, he has so much love for his students, right? but you did not ever give a really weak excuse as to why you don't learn your lesson, okay? Because he just will not accept it. He said, what did you do? He'll start investigating, okay? What did you do at this class? Which of your teachers were absent? Why didn't you read it in your free time, okay? What time did you go to sleep? What time did you wake up, okay? Why did you go back to sleep after Fajr? How come you're not ready in my class? Who did you read it with? Why did you read it with him? Why didn't you review it with this other guy, okay? Like, um, you're, you're toast. You're, you're done for, right, in that lesson. And... Um, he never accepted anything other than our best. And we make a lot of dua for him. If not for him, then we would not take our studies seriously in that way. Um, one of our teachers, his name is uh, uh, Mufti Muhammad Ali Falahi. He's from India. Yeah, the Darlum in India called Falahi Darain. It's actually the same institution where Imam Tahir Anwar uh, in California, in the Bay Area, who was an instructor for Zaytun, and he also graduated from there as well, uh, in Gujarat. Um, uh, he was the one of my first immediate influences on how to be a public speaker. If you are able to access any of his recordings online from his masjid or on YouTube, Mufti Muhammad Ali Falahi, he has an older brother in India. His name is Qari Ahmad Ali Falahi. His older brother comes to England every year to his younger brother's masjid during Ramadan for Etikaf. And he does programs there. But these two brothers, and Mufti Muhammad Ali Falai, who's my teacher for Ibn Majah Sharif, as for the Sunan of Ibn Majah, as well as in Darul Ifta, um, uh, just every class of his is like a lecture. Lecture in the sense that um, it's like watching a movie. It's like just watching a performance. Okay, He's so unbelievably animated he's so unbelievably like a complicated discussion in fiqh or usul al-fiqh or in tafsir or in hadith right he's telling you the story of you know what this hadith is talking about and you can see it happening in front of you and he's got the voice and he's got the tone and he's got the body language and he's making you cry and he's making you burst into laughter uh, he was someone who very much influenced me when I really wanted to take something like public speaking and working on my khutbahs 
more seriously. I just benefited a lot from him in that regard. One of my other teachers who I take a lot from in Blackburn is um, Mufti Siraj Patel, Mufti Siraj Ahmed Patel. He's the one who I learned uh, inheritance from. I learned Mishkat from him and also Sahih Muslim from him. He was basically kind of like having your older brother teach you the lesson, even though he's much senior to us, right? But you never saw him as a teacher. He had the knowledge, right? And he had the academic, you know, uh, control and command over everything. But it just seemed like you're just listening to an entire hour of nasiha from your older brother in the way that he's teaching the Sahih of Imam Muslim or the way that he's teaching the fiqh. Right? He's asking, do you get it like this? Or think of it like this, okay? And just the experiences that we have with him are where he's telling us about different situations that he's experiencing. He used to ask us advice about homeschooling, right? He used to ask us advice about, um, you know, how did you guys do your hifs? He's the one who's always asking us, okay, so what did you do this weekend? Um, who's doing tarawih, right? Where do you teach? He used to just keep track of our lives, right? And just pay attention to us outside of our classroom right so a lot of fun with him i uh, went and volunteered at his masjid for hips a couple of days as well when he wasn't able to make it he called me up he asked me to go there um, i'll just mention two more examples of my teachers from blackburn um, one of our teachers is um, mufti muhammad nazir right he's a student of mufti taqi uthmani from darlum karachi he's pakistani he's Pratan. Um, the, he's the one teacher with the corny jokes and the really, really desi sense of humor. But it was so clever and so rich and witty. He knows that we all think that he's lame, right? But he doesn't stop. And it's actually really, really clever if you pay attention to it. Okay, so a couple of uh, our classmates, um, they used to study at university part-time. Right? So his favorite thing is just taking English words and making them into a corny Desi uh, version of it, okay? So, students who used to part-time go to university, meaning that they would miss madrasa classes a couple days of the week. University is you never stay. Meaning what? You never stay. <laughs> and that's it. That's the joke. <laughs> when we tell him, okay, that this student, oh, he's not here today, he's got his university classes, he's taking part-time credits, he's like, oh, you never stay. All right? Um... But he's the first one who really introduced us to topics outside of our curriculum, our madrasa curriculum, specifically when we think about deviant sects, when we talk about other schools of thought, or when we talk about uh, issues like atheism, or when we talk about issues like um, modernism and liberalism, seculars, all these other different types of things. Um, even though he's explaining it to us in Urdu, he wasn't as fluent as in English as many of our other teachers, but um, he's challenging us, okay, read the books of the Ithna Asharis, the Twelve Rashiyas. Read the books of the Qadianis. Read the books of people who are not Sunnis. Read the books of the people who are writing, um, who are not Muslim, the Orientalists. Read the books of all of these people. What they have written about Islam, and you as an alim, as a scholar, someone who's coming from this institution and any other institution, you should be able to respond to that. Okay, he challenged us in that way. Okay, one of our other teachers, um, Mufti Muhammad Farooq, okay, he was one of our teachers in Dar Lifta as well. Um, I helped him a little bit. He was someone who was researching and writing. That's the one thing that I remember him very vividly for. Okay, in addition to teaching in Madrasa, he was very much focused on not just doing that only with 
his you know you know position as an imam or as a teacher he was writing books and he was teaching children as well all of the other teachers other than mufti abdus samad they were all part time imams or full time imams in blackburn but mufti farooq he encouraged us over and over again don't just be limited in this try to find other ways to serve the deen and specifically what he did he's written a couple of books he's written a book a woman's guide to hajj and umrah that was published from blackburn he's written a book about adab of the bathroom he's written about a book about um some of the impermissible things as far as marriage relationships and things like that um just making sure that you have a habit of doing research after graduating not just researching topics that you teach not just researching topics that you have to speak about but also researching topics that maybe you don't think are that important but as a scholar you should have a habit of researching the last example of my teachers from blackburn who had a very very heavy influence on me is um mufti akram al haq okay uh, mufti akram al haq he was our teacher for sunan abu daud as well as the second half of hidayah in hanafi fiqh and also he was the head mufti in our darul ifta he's the one who has the final signature in our darul ifta um i can't really say much about him other than he is the most humble human being i've ever met to a fault it's like frustrating how humble he is one of the other muftis in one of the other madrasas in england wrote a letter to him that particular scholar had written his own collection of fatwas he sent a letter and a first like rough draft of it to our dar mufti karamul haq can you please write a foreword to it can you please write a foreword to my collection of fatwa look through it see what you think and write a foreword to it if you have if i have your foreword then you know hopefully that'll be a positive endorsement right it's a good thing so mufti karamul haq actually writes apology letter back to him he's like like look if you put my name in the foreword of your collection of fatwa you're already a greater mufti than i am which is not true he's much much more senior if you write my name as someone who endorsed your book of fatwa people will not take your fatwa seriously because my name is on there which is like what like this is like the grand mufti of the uk if we had to narrow it down to maybe the top 3 he's probably in that list of top 3 muftis in the uk so that scholar right his name is mufti marghoub published the apology letter as the foe in his collection it's right the whole thing written down and he's got it signed at the end i'm sorry i can't write it for he published that apology letter in the forward to his book um but this goes back to a point that i mentioned earlier about practicing on our knowledge okay so he's the one right i'm finally getting he's the one who is the walking library in our madrasa right every madrasa has one he's the walking library in our mother so he knows the shelf number he knows the book volume number he knows the page number memorized off the top of his head mufti akram al haq is actually the son of the late sheikh al hadith in darlumbari sheikh al hadith maulana islam al haq rahimahullah who passed away in medina munawwara maulana islam al haq is the sheikh al hadith of all of the graduates of bury up until he passed away including our teacher mufti abdus samad right including uh Maulana Ibrahim and Maulana Mansoor from Darloom in Buffalo he's all of them their Sheikh al-Hadith their teacher um of Sahih al-Bukhari until he passed away Mufti Karim al-Haq is the eldest of his sons and he's the head of the Darlifta in Blackburn he's the library the walking library anything any reference he knows it off the top of his head but again because he's humble 
right? To the point of embarrassing everybody else around him. He's like, I'm pretty sure, or I think so, or let me double check, even though he doesn't have to double check. Okay. The reason why I say that is because there's a very well-known fatwa collection in India um, called Fatawa Rahimiya. There is a madrasa in Gujarat, Jamia Hosseiniya, Randir, in Surat in Gujarat, where Mufti Kramul Haq studied and graduated from. Mufti Kramul Haq later on went to Deoband as well to study under one of the students of Sheikh Zakaria, Mufti Mahmudul Hassan Gangohi, Mufti Mahmudul Hassan, who actually now um, is buried in South Africa. He has a lot of murids and students, specifically in South Africa and other parts of the world abroad. But Mufti Kramul Haq, while he was in Gujarat in India, um, his teacher, the head Mufti there, his name is Mufti Abdul Rahim Lajpuri, who wrote a collection of fatawa, which is known as Fatawa Rahimiya. So the Fatawa Rahimiya are the collection of the fatawa written. It's about 10 volumes by Mufti Abdul Rahim Lajpuri. But Mufti Kramul Haq is actually the one who did all the referencing and the footnotes, right? All the hawala, meaning, okay, which hadith and which book is this ruling, which evidence is it taken from, as well as the indexing and all of the voluming. Mufti Kramul Haq basically is the one who put all of that together. He's the one who compiled all of his teacher's fatawa, right, into that book form. He even knows about different editions as well. So even the fatawa Rahimiya was picked up by other publishers as well. He can tell you that publisher, they made this typo on this page. That publisher, they made this typo on this page. He is on a different level. Academically and scholarly, that's who he is. Um, but just two things. He walks to Madrasa. He lives about a mile away. He lives further than many of the other teachers who drive. Um, he walks to Madrasa every day. If someone sees him walking... Just out of respect, they'll beg him to sit in the car and then drive the rest of the way. He comes in a little bit after 10, 10.30. Classes start around 8. Well, he comes around 10, 10.30 and he stays until about lunch. He has about three classes. And then the rest of... Uh, he has two classes. And then after the second class, he just stays in Darul Ifta, just attending to the Ifta stuff, the fatwas that are coming in. He reminds us most, right? among other teachers and all of our teachers in different ways, right? But just very vividly, we never saw him get angry. Never, ever, ever saw him get angry at a student, okay? Disappointment and maybe he's like very frustrated. He's like, why did you do this? Okay, um, you know, uh, you know, you, all you had to do was something like this, right? Just kind of as a last, maybe only once or twice in the four years that I was there. Um, and I was with him just, uh, you know, Someone forgot to tell him or someone forgot to remind him and it was related to fatwa. Nothing personal. It was related to the madrasa. It was related to the fatwa department. He um, never, ever got upset. Uh, very rarely did he ever, um, you know, have a class in which he did not mention to us something related to the spiritual sciences, something related to practicing upon knowledge, something related to tarbiyah. Okay, we're there to acquire all this information, but he is emphasizing on, okay, not just the information, but making sure that, okay, as a scholar, people are going to turn to you, okay? In order for you to be an effective leader, right, the real mark of a scholar is to realize that you're always a student. Just these types of things that he would say to us, he would tell us stories about the scholars of the past, Right. He would mention interesting stories, stories about the biographies of all these different books in the library, the authors of these books. This is something that they did. This is something that they did. We just took so many different things from him. Right. And um, I've seen very few people with a mastery over the subject of fiqh 
and hadith than him in my lifetime. And I make a lot of dua for him. Uh, one of the most powerful influences on my life. So when did you start your training as a mufti and what does that entail? Uh, graduate eventually from Blackburn in 2011. So in 2011, we finished the books of hadith. I returned to Blackburn the following year uh, to train in the mufti program. It's one of the couple of institutions in, in the UK that has a full-time uh, mufti program, ifta, ifta the khassus fil fiqh. Um, part of it entails just answering questions. The teachers give us practice questions. Um, and we also get questions from outside as well. So altogether, in that one year while I was there, I did about 250 to 300 questions. Okay, so half of them were practice questions from the teachers. And then the other half were actual real questions that we helped out the muftis in researching and putting work together and writing and typing and then sending it out. So that training is there. Um, the benefits of doing ifta, one of the immediate benefits, were never to, it was never the intention to be recognized as a mufti. Okay, I really don't consider myself as one because I'm not doing that same type of work now after teaching, actually researching or looking into these different contemporary issues and finding some principle for it. I honestly don't think that's a justice to the title. But in any case, um, whatever the title is worth, um, the benefit that I got from that was... One, being forced to look into other books. Okay, one of the things that Mufti Karamul Haq told us, and the other teachers, they also told us as well, is just pick one of the major reference works within the Hanafi fiqh, okay, um, like the encyclopedias, right, and go through the entire thing cover to cover, even if it's an Urdu one, if you can't do an Arabic one. Okay, so um, going from not just the books that you have studied and not just the opinions of your teachers, but try to read like everything that has ever been written on the topic. So if we're talking about a divorce scenario, okay, try to find that scenario in every single book that exists within the library, right? Exhaust yourself with all the resources that you have to find anything remotely connected to the answer to that book. One of the things that you'll benefit in that process is while you're looking for that specific text that answers your question, You'll come across the 10 pages of stuff that's not directly related, but it's also really useful and in, from really useful information as well. Okay, so just the importance of research and broadening your research and knowing how to research, knowing how to look up and answer, right? The old school way, not just viewing a search on the internet. We did have Maktabata Shamila, right? The software program in our Ifta computer as well, but we were discouraged from using it unless there was like a time constraint it was like an emergency situation from an outside fatwa but our teachers never let us use the shamila database right the database that has a whole bunch of like thousands of islamic books like uploaded onto there um, we were not allowed to use that for our regular assignments um, so one of the most important takeaways for me from ifta is how to do research and referring to books of the other madhabs as well and then how to kind of apply the principles in different contexts because now we're seeing questions from outsiders as well. We're not just reading the case scenarios in the books that we studied. We have people asking questions about marriage, asking questions about divorce, asking questions about jobs and about employment and about, um, you know, salah issues and zakat issues. Okay, these are real world, real people questions that are sending to the madrasa officially to receive an, an official response from the madrasa. And we're involved 
helping out our teachers pull the books and write it and typeset it and all of that stuff. So that was really eye-opening, the entire experience of IFTA. Can you talk a bit about your master's program in Islamic studies and what it was like studying Islam in an academic setting after going the traditional route? While I was doing IFTA that year, I did a one-year part-time master's degree in an institution called the Markfield Institute of Higher Education. Um, it's a subsidiary of the University of Gloucestershire. It's like a satellite campus in a town called Leicester. Okay, Leicester is also a very big Muslim city. Um, a number of different ulama are there. But um, that was a one-year master's degree program that they were just temporarily offering for a period of years for students who had come out of the Darulum seminaries as graduates so that they could be accredited and certified with a you know secular degree, a master's degree. Um, the reason for doing that, one was it was cheap and it was a convenient opportunity. I was able to make it work with my IFTA assignments, my Mufti Madar IFTA assignments. And it was only a one-year program. I didn't have to do two years. Plus, it wasn't required to do an undergrad prior to being admitted onto the master's program. So three of my classmates from Blackburn, four of us all together, um, all four of us, we did that one-year program. Um, we drove there two days a week for class and uh, you know we completed that within the year as well one of the things that I took away from that was just a purely non-muslim and academic perspective of Islam so we have seen publications the Islamic Foundation is a well-known publisher from the UK um, that same facility is where this campus is right and there are it's all Muslim professors and they're teaching Islamic studies there. They have a master's in Islamic studies, master's in Islamic finance, master's in uh, Islamic history, and a number of specific degrees for Muslim subjects. But still, um, the important thing that I took away from there was this non-Muslim perspective on Islam. Really digging into Orientalism and academia. What, you know, in English, okay, I had no idea that, you know, people like, uh, Watt exists or Goldseer exists or you know even people like Robert Spencer and all these people right people who are Islamophobes alive today and people from the past who wrote a whole bunch of as far as Muslims are concerned really problematic and uncomfortable things about the hadith the authenticity of hadith and about the Quran and the authenticity of the Quran all of that stuff just being exposed to it um, in that type of still healthy, somewhat controlled environment, the Muslim teachers and the Muslim professors helped us through it. Um, initially, it was a lot of shock. That how could anybody say this stuff? How can any sane Muslim student study this stuff with an open mind and be critical of these things and try to write an essay where you're critical about anything in Islam? But no, that's just the nature of how academics work. For Muslims, right? I will say that it's not for everyone. Right? If you're studying in a seminary, if you're a Darulum graduate, or if you're a part-time student, um, studying Islam academically is not for everyone. You have to make sure you have grounding in you know, your basic fundamentals, right? your aqidah, your beliefs about the Prophet ﷺ, the Qur'an, the attributes of Allah, all of those things before you go and kind of read what all of these other scholars wrote. Okay? And credit where credit is due. I mean, there's no prohibition on saying that they can, they're not allowed to write or research about this stuff. But at the end of the day, 
you know, they're not convinced in the truth, right? They're not Muslims, they didn't accept Islam, but they still wrote about it and those materials are accessible, right? As a fard kifaya, we need some of the ulama who are trained in the Muslim world, who are trained with a Muslim background to, you know, what Mufti Nazir, right? My teacher Mufti Nazir told us, okay, you have to read the books of those who are misguided. You read the books of those who are ignorant. You read the books of those who are Islamophobes. Read it so that you can be ahead of it and so that you can respond to it. And, you know, which by the way, okay, is what scholars like Al-Ghazali and others did. Okay, they took the books of the philosophers that were influenced by the Greeks and all these other things. They tried to understand it and then they tried to refute it whether or not uh, they did a good job. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepted from them, right? But this is part of scholarship as well. Knowing what your enemy is saying about you, what your enemy is writing about you, and then academically with rational and with textual arguments, disproving it and refuting it, okay? Coming out of your comfort zone in that way. It's not for everyone, but still it's a fard kifaya. It has to be a group of ulama doing that. So you also did a leadership training with Sheikh Abdul Hakim Rad. What was that like? My final stop in the UK uh, was Cambridge Muslim College. Now, this was a very, very tight window in which a lot of different things opened up for me in a short period of time. Uh, while I was in Blackburn, Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad, who is the founder of Cambridge Muslim College, okay, uh, Caucasian European white guy, okay, red hair, ginger beard, okay, goatee, tall, okay, he looks like, you know, a Turk. He's actually fluent in Turkish and Bosnian and in Farsi and like good seven, eight other languages as well, but also very humble and very soft-spoken. But if there was an academic in the English language, I would have to just pick him at the top of my list, right? He speaks like and thinks like a university professor, right? To be very honest with you, you have to listen to some of his talks and some of his lectures a couple of times. You have to read some of his papers a couple of times before you can figure out exactly what he's talking about. That's the level of scholarship that I feel that the majority of scholars need to be on as far as research, as far as language and eloquence and being able to argue with references. Um, he's doing amazing work there. He came to Blackburn while we were there in the final year. Um, he was introducing his program. He started his college about two, three years before that. Um, my class at Cambridge, we were, I believe, the fourth graduating class there. There were 12 of us, okay? The curriculum was, at that time, what Sheikh Abdul Hakim's vision is, that he wants to take the best and the brightest from the seminaries that are in the UK, right? And again, it was only 12 of us, right? And I mentioned that there are over 20, at least 20 full-time seminaries. So that means if we're just doing the numbers, there's between four and 500 men and women who are graduating as alims and alima scholars every year in the UK alone, right? Full-time students, right? With Isanad and Ijaza in Hadith. Um, Sheikh Abdul Hakim wanted to take the best and brightest of them and give them leadership skills training. So basically the things that we were not able to go in depth in while we were in madrasa, either because of timing or either because of not having access to the specialists, um, he pre created a curriculum in which future imams and scholars, right, they would be able to have those skills to now go back and serve their communities in that capacity. So that was the first time where I was taught interfaith. And what were we taught in interfaith? We had a Hindu professor come from the University of Cambridge. Sheikh Abdul Hakim is also a Zayed lecturer at the Cambridge University, 
okay, at that time. I'm not sure if he's still an official lecturer at the university. Uh, but it's in the same town as the University of Cambridge. And Cambridge is very, very prestigious, um, right? It's competing with Oxford throughout history. Um, Cambridge uh, professors from the university, Sheikh Abdul Hakim got a Hindu professor from there to teach us a full day, just what are the basic beliefs of Hinduism? What are the basic beliefs of Buddhism? Catholicism, Protestantism, right? We actually had these non-Muslim teachers come and teach us, a group of scholars, men and women, about these teachings, okay? We had people from different fields in science, so we had someone come and teach us about astronomy. So we had studied about you know, the different opinions and fic about moon sighting, but actually how do the calculations work and how do the observatories work and how do they determine the age of the birth of the moon and all of those things from a scientific perspective, right, that we're not able to understand because we don't have the diagrams in front of us back in the madrasa days. Those things, okay, bioethics, okay, what is euthanasia? What are the fiki rulings about things like euthanasia or about surrogacy, um, you know, um, you know, all, all those different types of things, organ donation, okay? The madrasa, we don't know the wherewithal about how these things actually are evolving within the industries that, uh, you know, the healthcare industry or medicine about vaccines and stuff like that. The madrasa, we're not learning about those types of technicalities in the madrasa. We're learning the basic straightforward stuff from the textbooks, the classical textbooks. But these are the issues that imams and scholars today need to be addressing. So we have specialists from all of these different fields coming in teaching us about these things, okay? We had a, a very, very powerful, beneficial module on gender studies. We had a very powerful module about um, sociology for the first time. We understood what is Muslim sociology? What were communities like in the Ottoman Empire, in the Mughal Empire, right? How was education? What Islamic education is all about? Uh, what does it mean to be a Muslim in Britain, okay? By default, it was in the British context, but there's a lot of similarities to the American context, as well. Um, we had a module about public speaking, right? Unfortunately, there is a large number of imams and scholars and alims and alimas who have the knowledge, right? But they haven't practiced public speaking. And I'm not just talking about giving a lecture or a halakha or a talk, but also public speaking in other capacities on a community level, like if you're going to give a newspaper interview, if you're going to give a radio interview, if you're going to give a TV interview, whole bunch of different tips and tools of the trade that people need training on, okay? And then, you know, add to that list chaplaincy, right? And then within chaplaincy, hospital chaplaincy, end-of-care, end-of-life practices, um, university chaplaincy, prison chaplaincy, all of these different opportunities and avenues that exist, okay, for graduates of these institutions other than just imamat and dars. Other than just being a full-time imam or just being a teacher part-time or full-time uh, in a masjid or in a community center. So that was very, very beneficial. That helped shape very much the way I think about imam work and about being a community leader now that you know I have come back and now I'm in my community. So that uh, was all condensed in a year? That was all condensed in a year. We did... 12 modules in one year, right? If you go to their website, I'm not sure. Now they've expanded it. They've made it into a four-year bachelor's program, so they go much, much more in-depth. But at that time, it was all in one year. We went on a trip to Rome. We visited the Vatican for four days as part of our module. Uh, we attended the Wednesday address with Pope Francis in the Vatican. 70,000 people were there. Uh, it was a really, really enlightening experience. Um, 
While in Cambridge, I had the opportunity because we had no classes on Fridays and Saturdays. So we had classes from Sunday to Thursday. While in Cambridge, basically, I'm free. No more madrasa, curfew, no more you know, restrictions on going out or anything else. Uh, we were on scholarship while we were there. So uh, we were able to get some stipend money as well. So I would just travel wherever I could. In Cambridge, I tried to avenge every type of Islamic-seeming event that the university has to offer, visited the museum of Allama Iqbal, right? The great poet and thinker from Pakistan who studied in Cambridge. Um, Cambridge has a very, very rich academic tradition. I visited the place where Isaac Newton studied and, you know, spent some time in the place where Stephen Hawking is. And Cambridge is a very, very rich, just educational, scholarly university town. But on the weekends, right, London is only an hour away by train. Okay, Leicester is only an hour away by train. I would try to go and attend all these other different scholars and speakers and programs, connect with my friends from Madrasa. And um, that one year that I was in Cambridge, I just took as much and whatever the UK had to offer before time for me to go back to America. I met with a number of different people who were running Islamic schools at that time, who were successful and effective imams at that time, based off of what I saw. I went in and visited all of them, and many of them took advice, told them, I'm from America, I'm going to go back, I've studied here and here, this is what I've done, what would you advise me, what would you tell me to pay attention to? And, mashallah, when you go to some of these towns, you will see that there are hundreds of students. And South Africa is no different. You will see that there are hundreds of students every day, throughout the week, Monday to Friday from 5, 5.30 up to 7, 7.30, two hours a week after school, they're in the masjid, okay? And these institutions all run by scholars, men and women, and very, very effective, okay? Uh, you know, one thing that I picked up is that what we want for the Muslim community is that not for them to all become scholars. We want everybody to be a maktab graduate. What are you when you become a maktab graduate, an after-school graduate? You know your basic tajweed. You know your basic rules on how to pray. You learn your basic, you know, rulings, du'as, and things like that. What hurts the most, right, after being in an environment like England, after visiting South Africa, is that there are many, many children within our community. You know, our Sunday school curriculums, may Allah reward those who are working day and night to try to improve on these institutions, but... What's very, very difficult sometimes to come to terms with, these are balig, mature, teenage boys and girls who have been through their Sunday school curriculum, who have going to the masjid, but they don't know basics of how to do wudu. They don't know how to give the adhan. They don't know the ayatul kursi. They don't know ten surahs, correct pronunciation or translation. And it asks, begs the question in my mind, what have you been doing? What is... Uh, uh, you know, what's going on here? That doesn't make any sense. How can a family with children who's this much attached to the masjid still not know these basics? So what did you end up doing after you finished at Cambridge and how did you end up back on the East Coast? So after finishing from Cambridge, um, I spent about six months in Tablig Jamaat. I always wanted to go for an entire year. So the customary... Uh, advice, recommendation is for people who are non-scholars, you should spend at least four months once in your life to kind of understand uh, how it all works and try to get a grasp of it. But for people who are scholars or going to go back to work in their communities as imams, the minimum requirement is one year. I didn't pull off one year. 
I was kind of a lot under a lot of pressure from home to kind of come back and start work at my masjid where I had been leading in Ramadan during Tarawih. So I was there in Tablik Jamaat. I spent about 40 days in England and then after that I went to India. While in India, I was able to visit um, Bombay, which uh, we don't think of as a city as having a lot of Muslims, but Bombay, Mumbai has perhaps maybe even a bigger population of Muslims than Hindus, depending on where you go. Certain parts of it, there's Muslims all over the place. It's very much like New York City. There's a lot of out-of-towners and foreigners. And that was just very, very different. A city like New York City, but in you know India, a different part of the world. And the influence of Islam in certain parts of the city in these communities is very, very strong. There's scholars there. There's people doing work there. Um, but also the experience of like roughing it and living in the masjid. It's not like... Jamaat in India, uh, sorry, Jamaat in England or America where the masjids have air conditioning and the masjids have people that care for you and provide food for you. You got to cook yourself. You got to transport yourself. Uh, we were in Bombay for some time. We were in Bhopal in uh, central India for some time. And then we also spent time a couple of days in Mewat, which is where the effort of uh, Jamaat at Tablik started. Um, it was kind of kicked off and founded by one of the uncles of Sheikh Zakaria Rahmatullah his name is Mawlana Ilyas Rahmatullah who's also one of his teachers of hadith right? but he's not given as much credit as he deserves as a scholar of hadith just because he's known as the founder of Tablik um, we visited that village right it's a town in Mewat called Nuh and then at the end of my time in India um, at the end of my time in India uh, we were able to visit Deoband and Saharanpur, those actual villages where all of our teachers and grand teachers they trace their tradition back from. The Markas in Nizamuddin, right, it's a masjid that was established there. It's next to the grave and the mausoleum, the mazar of Khaja Nizamuddin Oliya, one of the great saints of India. And yeah, there's unfortunately a lot of innovative practices that take place there. But the Markas, where the Tablig hub is in Nizamuddin, that is still there. And there are people that come from all over the world that meet there and collect there and disperse from there. Um, I was able to meet, you know, English-speaking Muslims from South Africa, from Europe, from America, from all over the world there, as well as from other parts of the world there. Um, from India, I go spend some time in Bangladesh with some students there. A couple of colleagues of mine from Blackburn actually are in the same group as me. Uh, the World Ijtima that happens every year in Bangladesh is the second largest gathering after Hajj. Okay, it takes place in this huge, just plain area uh, called uh, Tongi in Bangladesh. It's actually a couple minutes, not too far away from where my one of my uncles in Bangladesh lives in Dhaka. Um, I was there for that weekend and... Uh, Amazing gathering, amazing gathering, scholars and dua and talks and a whole bunch of different things happening. After spending time in Jamaat, I spent about two weeks just visiting my grandmother and with my family before coming back to America. In March of 2014, Islamic Center of South Jersey, my masjid in Palmyra, that is where um, I took up a full-time position. They had offered it to me before. They were just anxiously waiting for me to... Uh, graduate there was really no other plan um i was in allentown for one year and then i must have been west philadelphia upper derby for three years but then from 2010 up until now i've been doing tarawi at this masjid of mine in south jersey in palmyra it's exit four off the new jersey turnpike okay uh, just across the river from northeast philadelphia um i've been there full-time since march of 2014 and um from them from then on 
you know, I, I never really thought about going anywhere else to work. Um, I was able, while I was here during Ramadan, right, uh, make some connections and friends and relationships with the community there in Palmyra, in South Jersey. I realized more of what I experienced growing up in my own community, that there's this entire generation of young people who are disconnected out of no fault of their own. They just don't understand Urdu or Arabic, okay? And, um, you know, their parents are volunteers at Sunday school. Not, none of them are scholars. So um, not to give this as an analogy, right? But just to kind of be very frank and honest with my opinion, garbage in, garbage out, right? You have people who are not trained in giving these types of answers or responses on issues like hijab, issues like meat, issues like gender relations, issues like um, relationship with non-Muslims, right, to teenage boys and girls, um, their attitudes towards the deen is going to be what it is based off of that. So again, credit where credit is due, very sincerely make dua for those who have set up and are still continuing and running these institutions, right, but there clearly is, it was and is, um, this generational gap, this communication gap as a result of that. I encourage um, you know, other ulama who are in a position like myself who are able to speak in English to make themselves accessible and come out of their comfort zone and make sure that they understand the community that they're dealing with, what are the issues that they need to deal with, right? Not all of them are trying to learn Arabic. Not all of them are trying to learn fiqh or hadith or aqidah. Many of them they're just trying to figure out how to survive in school. They're just trying to figure out how to get married. They're just trying to figure out how to deal with their parents and the culture of their parents and the culture of the home country of their parents and also figure out how to be American and how to be accepted as an American Muslim. Um, none, of the, none of those things are mentioned in the books of fiqh or in the books of madrasa uh, for that regard. So, you know, the skills that I learned in Cambridge, alhamdulillah, uh, you know, are useful in that part of my work. But there was really no other plan to go anywhere else other than come back close enough to home. So the East Coast, I'm about an hour away, 25 miles away from where my parents live. I do go back to visit them on my days off. How did you get involved um, outside of your local measure with Safina Society and as a chaplain at Drexel University? There was a brother in my community. I want to specifically mention a couple of these people by name until I get to Safina and how I'm here uh, with uh, you, Sister Hiba, recording this episode. A brother of mine uh, named Hamza Farouk, he was a student at Drexel at the MSA. During uh, one of the Ramadan, or during the time I was here, before I was on vacation, before graduating, before coming back to England in 2014 and 2013, I had known him, his father and his family, they live in the community in South Jersey. He's a student at Drexel MSA at the time, freshman at that time, I believe. He invited me, he connected me to the MSA at Drexel to be one of the keynote speakers for their Islamic Awareness Week. That's how I got connected to Drexel. And I met with people at Drexel. I started giving khutbah at Drexel, okay, once in a while, um, when I don't have to give khutbah at my masjid, I would go and visit Drexel to give khutbah there. And that was a different experience than giving khutbah at a local masjid, right? Students and, you know, specific topics that are relevant to them, I got to now figure out and think about and try to communicate with them. It was a very, very beneficial experience. Plus, it's people that I can actually hang out with and people that I can 
you know, share and learn pop culture references from rather than in the masjid where even though I'm younger, I'm still an employee at the masjid and, you know, all the people that are in the administration at the masjid are all older than me. They're my father's age or closer to my father's age. So I can't really have a personal or close relationship with them other than professional work at the masjid. But these are just students, right, who are not too much younger than me. So I just slowly, slowly start spending more and more. It's about 25 minutes away from me on a clear traffic trip drive to Philadelphia. So I'm in and out of Drexel more and more just through my brother, Hamza Farouk. Uh, he graduated last year. He's working back in the area now. Alhamdulillah is an environmental engineer, very close to him and his family. They have taken very good care of me and looked after me and made a lot of dua for me while I've been here. Alhamdulillah. Um, please make dua for him as well. Very sincere brother of mine. Um, through him and through Drexel, I was able to get connected with another brother. His name is Muhammad Adnan Sattar, a Guyanese brother from Long Island. His father is Imam Zamir Sattar, who uh, his family has a travel agency company, Sarah International Travel. Uh, they take uh, groups for Hajj and Umrah every year and Umrah throughout the year. And uh, brother Muhammad Sattar was basically influential he was a student at drexel at the time and he would have a weekly gathering in his apartment we would read sections of the summarized ihya alumuddin the orange overpriced book right published by spore the orange hardcover one uh, imam ghazali wrote the ihya alumuddin but he summarized it himself so a translation of that summary um, we used to get together once a week i would drive from new jersey to his apartment once a week and through him i was able to connect with other masjids in the area through his influence through his father right in new york i mean his father has his family has a hajj company okay so they are able to connect with different scholars so kind of one thing led to another i found myself uh hearing about nbic meeting with uh, dr shadi during one of the vicar nights and family nights and um dr shadi has visited drexel a number of times through the msa for events as well um i taught started teaching at Uwelim back in 2016, I believe, was my first year, 2017-18, and now again in 2019. Um, uh, Dr. Shadi reached out to me. I was coming. There was a brother of mine. His name is Muin Sayed. Uh, he's from South Jersey originally. He moved, he relocated to NBIC area, New Brunswick community, for a couple of years. He got married uh, he's relocated back to South Jersey because of work. Um, so through him, I was also able to spend more time, an excuse to come and spend time at NBIC. Um, through NBIC, I was also able to spend some time with scholars from Medina, Al-Medina Institute, right? They have the Pearls of the Quran conference. I was able to visit the ICNA convention for the first time previously before going to America. I never knew about ICNA. I never really heard about ICNA. But it's become a family thing for me. So through there, I'm able to meet with many other scholars and speakers and try to at least connect with the ones who are able. In my, This is just something I find very, very interesting. I feel like people who are doing, doing similar work in the community, be it in an official role or an unofficial role, whether you're a trained scholar or not, or whether you're just someone who's teaching part-time or studying part-time, right? If you're doing similar type of work, you should take from them, right? So I never see myself as someone who only will uh, communicate with or only socialize with or only take from people who have 
a very, very similar or identical background to mine. Anybody who's doing work in any capacity helping young Muslims or have a similar vision to me, I want to also take from them as well. But um, at Drexel, I became a volunteer chaplain in January of 2015, so almost about two years, about a year and a half since I started just visiting on my own, just kind of helping out or just kind of participating um, my role at Drexel is still a voluntary one. I'm there two days a week. I have office hours now. Alhamdulillah, we have a very impressive prayer room that was uh, uh, put together by uh, the Department of Diversity and Inclusion of the university. They have a very, very good setup there as far as student diversity and trying to make sure that you know people of different faiths and students of different faiths are very comfortable in their experience on campus throughout their college years. Majority of the time at Drexel goes into just spending time with the students. Much of it is uh, informal and personal time, just dealing with the different issues that they may have. Very, very enlightening, right? Young people today, the biggest thing about chaplaincy that I've just kind of observed is this is the first time in the life of a young person where they have to now make the decision to, number one, be an adult, be mature, be responsible, and also be a Muslim as practicing as much as they can on their own. Up until now, while you're at high school, um, your parents are still there to give you advice and to wake you up and to check up on you, but now you're an adult. And adulting is very, very hard and difficult, and college life does not make adulting easier, and all the different pressures and stresses that come with work and that come with free time and all of those things... Um, it's been a very, very enlightening and eye-opening experience working with the students, trying to help them hold on to their religious identity, give them some spiritual enrichment, and also at the same time, you know, give them solutions and advices to sometimes otherwise very, very difficult experiences of school and work and family and home and all of those things. But um, that is something that I hope, inshallah, in the future will transition into something more full-time. But as of right now, um, my full-time occupation, my full-time position is at the masjid in South Jersey. I'm also teaching um, part-time with Ikra Institute, which is in Greater Philadelphia. I've been there for about four years. They also have a program similar to the Awalem program at Safina Society. I've been with Safina Society for four years now. I've been with Ikra Institute now. This is my fourth year there. Okay. Um, similar, they have an adult program in which they're teaching these different subjects once a week on Tuesday evenings. Um, Imam Ghazali Institute, which is basically the institution my friend Muhammad Sattar's father, Imam Zamir, started under that umbrella. I've taught a couple of seminars at Drexel and in New York and in around the New Jersey tri-state area. So a bit off topic, but I think it's really important. Um, your wife is also an Allah. Um, is that something that was important for you as you were looking for a spouse? Um, I got married in 2015, so almost uh, a year and a half after graduating. Um, it was something that I personally needed some time to get prepared for as far as making sure that I had a st stable job and income and all of those things. Uh, Alhamdulillah, uh, it's a great blessing of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, I was able to get married way above my league. Uh, my wife is also an alima. She is a trained scholar in the Islamic sciences. Personally, I wanted uh, to be married to an alima 
depending on who you ask and whatever their experiences were, if you would ask an alim or an alima, because of the experiences that they have had either during their student days or after as they do work in the community, um, you know, you will notice that many of them perhaps don't want to be married to another alim or alima. Um, without divulging too much, okay? They know about all the stuff that happens during the Madrasa days and they know about all the stuff that you can and can't get away with, right? To kind of dodge the bullet there. But um, me, very specifically, when I was thinking about getting married to someone who is an alima, I very selfishly and personally wanted somebody who just understood two things specifically for me. One is my lifestyle. Right, someone who's going to be having very awkward timings, someone who's going to be on call for things like funerals, for things like weddings, someone who's going to be sometimes required to travel for extended periods of time for faraway places, someone who's not going to have regular hours, someone who's going to have to deal with uh, community members perhaps, right, very uncomfortably at times and uh, very nerve-wracking at times. I wanted to make sure that the person I married would be used to that and it would not have to be a very very major transition for that person adjusting to my work and adjusting to my lifestyle i just knew that this is what i wanted to do this is what i needed to do this is what i kind of felt that i was good at right and this is what i was trained to do right the person who i'm going to be married to um, they have to be able to adjust to that so a community member of ours who used to live in pennsylvania relocated and moved to Atlanta, connected my family with uh, my father-in-law's family. My father-in-law's name is Mufti Saif al-Islam. He uh, has been the imam at Masjid Omar bin Abdulaziz in Norcross, one of the northeast suburbs of New Jersey. Um, and so uh, he connected our families together. Alhamdulillah, my wife and uh, my two immediate sister-in-laws uh, they all are students of the re- dean. Uh, my wife and my immediate sister-in-law, both of them graduated together uh, from South Africa, Darulum Zakaria, Moinul Islam, the Madrasa for Girls in South Africa, just outside Johannesburg uh, earlier this year. Um, my younger sister-in-law, uh, she just recently completed memorizing the Quran, she finished her hifs, and she's started her studies in South Africa and uh, my mother-in-law is also a teacher in the community. She's also an alima from South Africa. So I was satisfied, at least on paper, that, okay, they already have experience in doing imamat work in a suburban community. Uh, not exactly similar to mine, but somewhat similar to mine. So, um, you know, my wife, she would be familiar with the lifestyle of an imam who's just kind of being pulled in all different directions because of work all the time. Um, So that was the first thing. Me, very selfishly, right? This is the work that I am going to try to dedicate my life to. Hopefully, the person that I married, they'll be able to help me and adjust to that with me, adjust and grow with me, inshallah, on that journey. The second thing is, um, again, very selfishly, uh, not because of the challenges that are indeed there, and we make dua for all parents who are facing this challenge, but inshallah in the future, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blesses, uh, with, blesses us with children, that um, you know, I would have help, inshallah, in teaching the deen to our children. They would have 
uh, easier access to a Quran teacher. They would have easier access to someone who can teach them the basics. Um, especially if I have daughters, right? And we society and in a time and place and an age today where our sisters, our daughters, our mothers, okay, our wives are not able to have, you know, the access that they need at times or the access that they deserve at times uh, to scholarship, okay, because of lack of female scholarship or because of, you know, all of the issues and challenges of male scholarship and interaction and all of those things. Um, I was always thinking about uh, marrying an alima for those two reasons, right? That our lifestyle, right, would be compatible and my vision, our vision for raising our children, inshallah, would be compatible. Um, and we consult each other on things all the time. She has her perspective as a woman and as an alima, right? She has lived in South Africa, studied in South Africa. She has lived in her community in Atlanta. Now she's in New Jersey. She you know, has seen the way that my father-in-law runs a masjid and I am much, much younger than him and I'm very much a kid in front of example like him. Um, she advises me all the time on how to do things better. Up until now, I've been doing certain things a different way. Uh, even very, very particular things like how I teach certain concepts or how I uh, approach certain decisions. Um, just having that perspective there, but also deep down and all the way at the bottom underneath, not all the way at the bottom underneath, but just for the expression, um, the grounding in the religious knowledge and the grounding in the base and understanding that, okay, this is what my values are, this is what our values are, this is what Islamic values are, that we know, um, you know, we constantly are helping each other grow and we're constantly helping each other improve and to develop uh, together as far as the work that I do, the work that she does, and also us as a couple as well. I never thought about this before, but it's an amazing thing to have someone challenge me again. I mentioned that, you know, I've had kind of different phases where it's, I have to prove a different set of people wrong. Now, right, the challenge is, okay, I'm called out by my wife all the time on things. I never noticed that I had, you know, these specific habits or these specific, you know, thought processes or whatever. And um, now she is challenging me, okay, to change the way I think or to improve the way I think or look at it from this perspective as well. And um, that's something I'm very, very grateful, right? And I make dua all the time that Allah, inshallah, reward her and increase us all with so much more tawfiq. Last question. Can you give some advice to students of knowledge, especially as it relates to sincerity and the points you made earlier about the skin, the sawaf? The point that I mentioned about uh, tasawwuf and tazkiyah is, um, you know, this is a profession and alhamdulillah for the sacrifice of my parents and the sacrifice of my teachers, okay, I don't take any credit for hard work or for my memory, anything. All of it is just the duas of my family members, sacrifices of my parents and, uh, you know, the effort of my teachers. Deep down, I mentioned this before, we know exactly who we are, what type of students we are, what type of speakers we are. When we think about the people that we learn from, when we think about our teachers who we took from, their level of ilm and sacrifice and their level of dua and, uh, you know, I asked uh, my sheikh, right, his name is Maulana Ahmed Batas. He's the principal of Madina Tululum and Kidderminster where I first was enrolled in the UK. I didn't mention him before, but I'm in touch with him uh, very sparingly, unfortunately. But I asked him this question, right, and I just want to leave 
you with a couple of advices to think about, not just for students of knowledge, but also just for people who want to understand what the spiritual path, what the Sauf and Tazkiyah is all about, but also just really good religious advice and nasiha and counsel right, from our teachings. I asked him, in, in, in the books of the Sauf and Tazkiyah, this uh, disease and this issue is called vanity. In Arabic, it's called ujb. Ujb is this feeling good about yourself. It's not the same thing as pride. Pride is where it goes to an unhealthy extreme. But uj, where you feel good about yourself, being able to do a good deed, and even if your intention is good and all of the things, but that good feeling when someone praises you. Okay? Um, I asked him, you know, how do I deal with this? Because shaitan is shaitan, and, you know, the nafs is the nafs, okay? People like it when you stroke their ego. People like it when, you know, you, they say... People like it when people say good things about them. But this can't be healthy, right? For everybody to say that I do such a good job, for nobody to tell me that I need to improve, for nobody to tell me that I need to work harder or I need to change things up, okay? So he said to me, just whenever someone comes up to you like that, just say, Alhamdulillah. I said, wait a minute, that's it? He said, yeah, just say Alhamdulillah. I was like, how? How is that the solution? He says, what does Alhamdulillah mean? I said, Alhamdulillah means all praises to Allah. He says, that's it then. You don't mean anything. You don't do anything. You can't take credit for anything. All praise is for Allah. Right? And he basically taught me the beginning of Surah Fatiha. I'm having this spiritual crisis. Okay, how do I deal with, you know this lifestyle and you know this glamour and stuff that you know people experience and sometimes it affects their relationships and things like that i don't want to get to that point as i just asked him beforehand how do i deal with this and he just says okay just say alhamdulillah say it out loud say it over and over again say it in to yourself alhamdulillah you know what it means they won't know what it means you know what it, what it means is that you don't take credit for anything all the credit belongs to allah all the praise belongs to allah and that's a very, very powerful, very simple and straightforward, but very, very powerful perspective. Right? Any good that we are able to do, any benefit that we are able to transmit, that is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So um, that's, that's one thing. I asked Mufti Abdul Samad, our Shaykh al-Hadith in Blackburn, about laziness. Okay, because how does he get the energy, right? And, you know, he's doing the same thing over and over again, okay? How does he get the energy, right? I mean, in his free time, okay? I can understand during class times to study properly and to take notes properly, but in your free time, how can you, doesn't your head hurt? Doesn't your brain get fried just by reading this stuff over and over again? When do you take a break? How do you take a break, right? And so my question to him specifically was, how do you defeat laziness, okay? How do you defeat laziness? And he said that in Urdu, susti ka ilaj chusti hai. Right? The cure to laziness right, is work. Right? Susti in Urdu means laziness okay, or fatigue, lethargic. And chusti means being active and being full of energy. There is no cure to laziness. You just got to stop being lazy. Right? You just got to stop allowing yourself to be lazy. Get rid of all those things that make you lazy and just work. Okay? In the process of doing the work, you'll figure it out. In the process of doing the work, okay, you'll be motivated. In the process of doing something, right? Right? You'll be doing something. If you're doing nothing, then nothing will happen. Nothing will get done and you're not going anywhere. Be in the mindset of trying to do something, right? And then add to that goals and add to that like 
achievements and accomplishments, but don't just do nothing. Especially as a scholar, the most detrimental thing is to have free time go to waste, okay? In your free time, actually go to sleep and get some rest. In your free time, actually spend time with your family, okay? In your free time, actually recharge your mind and your body, right? Don't just let any amount of time go to waste, okay? And the last thing that um, one of the most powerful pieces of advice that I received. I never actually studied under him, but he's a teacher of Abu Dawood in um, Darlum Bury. Um, he's, you know, well into his 80s. He sits on a wheelchair, but he doesn't wear glasses. He has like a giant magnifying glass that he puts really close between his face and the text on the page so that he can see the words on the page. And uh, he says a powerful thing I heard one time when he visited Blackburn. Um, he gave us ijaza in hadith, but he, I've heard it through him directly and also through secondary sources as well. He has mentioned it. A very powerful saying in Urdu. Kabi kisi neki ko itni choti mat samajna ke usko chhod de. Or kabi kisi guna ko itna chota mat samajna ke usko kar hi le. Don't think of any good deed. Right? Oh, it's only sunnah. Or it's only mustahab. Or it's only mubah. It's only sunnah. Don't think of any good deed as being so small that you leave it, okay? And the opposite is true as well. Don't think of any sin, just because it's not haram, it's just makru. Don't think of anything which is a sin as being so small that you end up doing it, that you allow yourself to justify it, that you allow yourself to uh, fall into it. So I make dua that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give me and all of us the tawfiq to... Um, increase in our love for studying the deen, increase in our love for those who transmit the deen to us. Um, yeah, we make dua for our teachers. May Allah preserve them. Those who are still here with good health and with afiyah, those who are no longer with us, may Allah make their sacrifice for us a means of their success and intercession in the grave and in the akhirah. And uh, we hope to just take from a fraction of what they gave to us and to transmit a fraction of what they transmitted to us. Um, and all good is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And whatever's incorrect is from myself and shaitan. And Allah and his messenger knows best. Right? This is what all of the great muftis and all of the scholars of the past, even though they were masters and even though they were agreed upon and accepted by everyone, right? the greatest lesson for someone who is a full-time or a part-time or a beginner student of deen is to have this attitude of humility right it's the, one of the greatest attributes of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam it's his humility right we study it in the story of the miraj and otherwise right but all of the great alims of the past whenever they would sign their fatwas right they would write wallahu alam allah knows best i don't know anything right this is the best that i can do allah knows best right and inshallah allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give us the clear picture in the akhirah we make dua that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us so much tawfiq so much tawfiq so much tawfiq jazakallah khair uh, for listening and inshallah we make dua that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept this effort subhanallah bihamdihi subhanakallah wa bihamdika shadu wa la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruk wa atubu ilayk